Yeah, well, look, innovation is a new industry. I don't think anybody ever thought that we would have William Shatner flying up into space on a privately owned spaceship. Disruptors, they're here to rock your world like the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin. They're changing every industry from transportation to entertainment and yes, banking. I think the days of several teller lines at a bank are history. Most of the people in the United States under 30, I don't know if they've been into bank or not. I'm Patrick Pacheco and you're listening to In Good Companies from Cadence Bank, the podcast where we answer the toughest questions facing your business and guide you through the company lifecycle from start to sale and success to succession. In business, if you're standing still, you're losing ground. You've got to always be finding new ways to do things better, faster, cheaper. No one epitomizes this mindset better than industry disruptors. Like Netflix and Uber, whose ideas change the world for all of us, they assume nothing and upend centuries-old models just by asking, what if? Of course, banking has its fair share of industry disruptors as well. Alternative lenders are changing who gets loans and how, challenging banks to adapt and evolve. Today, we're talking disruption in business and banking with our own disruptive force, Ross Vaughn, Executive Vice President of Commercial and Industrial Lending and President of the San Antonio Market at Cadence Bank. You'll learn how disruptors get financed and how to apply a disruption mindset to your business. Plus, we'll dive deep into alternative lending, telling safe from suspect and how banks are innovating themselves. So Ross, can you introduce yourself? Be happy to. Uh, My name is Ross Vaughn, and currently I'm an executive vice president of commercial and industrial lending in Houston and San Antonio. So I'm effectively the market president in San Antonio. Ross may be president of the San Antonio market, but if we're talking sports, his loyalty still lies in Houston. The guy who owns the Rockets now is a friend of mine. It's interesting to watch. He talks a good game, and when I'm talking to him, he's like, I said, what do you think about this? I don't get involved in that. You know, that's why I've got a president. That's why he gets involved in every single thing. But what Ross loves talking about even more than Houston sports is disruption. Because for him, disruption is business driving society forward. Disruption occurs, you know, it seems like almost daily. For me, I define it, and it's usually technology driven, but it means that a business that comes along that is using new tools to take market share from an old line industry. Think Tesla for the auto industry or Amazon for the retail industry or Netflix for the TV or movie industry. These are all old line industries, but those are three disruptors that have taken a massive amount of market share. So big industries, where they have been able to use technology to gain market share. So when I was growing up, which, which I hasn't really happened in full yet, but as I was growing up, we used the word innovation, and it seems like that's the same thing as disruption. How do those two things differ? Well, I look at innovation as using tools to come up with something new to the market. So when I think about innovation, innovative companies, I think about Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX. Those are companies that used innovation now to fly into space, whereas it only used to be the government. And 
you could say uh, drones are another innovation. You know, drone photography now is used frequently. So those are two examples of what I would say innovation that is taking it to a new step. And usually innovation doesn't go backwards. It only goes forward. Okay, so disruption is kind of the innovators plus uh, the people who take innovation and take it to the next step. So by definition, you're going to go out there and you'll be challenging incumbents. That's pretty daunting when you're this small new company with, with some big idea that's untested. What does a company like that do in their first year to really make an impact? Do you tiptoe into that? Do you, do you leg into the market? How do you go about entering that market when you uh, have a disruptive technology? I think you've got to enter it as hard and fast as you possibly can. The key is you want to generate sales. Now, when you enter it initially, you're going to fly under the radar. I don't think Barnes & Noble thought anything about Amazon. I don't think GM thought anything about Tesla. But you want to get in there and you want to sell product as quickly as you can to generate revenue. And in many cases, they're not making any money, right? Because they've sold the investors on the fact that, look, at some point, it'll flip and we will start making a lot of money. But up until that period of time, we need to get customers, we need to get press, we need to get people that will look at us as an alternative to the status quo. So how long does a disruptive type business, you know, how long do they have to make money before investors start getting a little nervous uh, for people start pulling out? Uh, you hit it hard for the first year. Is it some of the big disruptors that are out there, let's say a Tesla, and how, how long does it take before you really turn positive and start showing that this can not just be a great idea, but actually be an idea that makes money? Well, that's going to vary a little bit, but most businesses that I've studied it's going to take you five to 10 years before you can really be able to show the investor community for sure that you can make money. And what I mean by that is, you know, Amazon entered the market. They went public, I believe, in 1998 or 99, and they told the market, we're not going to make money for many years, many years being defined as five plus, let's say. And the investor community went along with that. And it was about around 10 years. I think it was early 2010, 2011. They finally flipped to profitability. And the investor community could see what Jeff Bezos had been saying was correct. And man, that stock rocketed. And I, and I think a lot of businesses that have come since Netflix would be a good example. You know, you spend $20 million on content, get a few hits. And man, that's when you're generating positive cash flow. Same thing with Tesla. You know, Tesla certainly has been aided by credits that uh, they've been able to sell to investors. But once you get to a certain point and get some volume and your, your investment period goes down and your revenue period goes up, that's when you can make some money. But what happens once disruptors are on top of the pile? What keeps them from getting disrupted? They know that there's somebody out there that can do the same thing. I think they strive to stay innovative to protect their business. And I'll pick out an example that everybody will recognize. IBM, they used to dominate the computer industry. But IBM didn't change. 
they didn't adapt and now they're kind of an also ran out there they're trying to adapt they're splitting the company into two uh, one of them's going to be cloud and faster growth and the other one's going to be kind of their old line computer business but that's a really good example of a business that didn't stay innovative and you could say the same thing for the auto industry ev is not really a new technology i mean it's batteries the battery technology is somewhat new, but EV's been out there for most of the major auto industries. But they, I think for the most part, they kind of dismissed it, said, why do we need to do that? Then you have a disruptor like Tesla that comes in, and suddenly they're all about EV right now, EV trucks and EV cars. And that's a good example. IBM, I think they started wearing both blue and white shirts, and that was kind of their innovation at the time. So I, I don't think... Anybody ever thought that we would have uh, William Shatner flying up into space on a privately owned spaceship? Owners and CEOs need to think outside the box and be open to different ideas. If you haven't caught on, Ross is a big fan of disruption, but banks tend to favor businesses that have been around for a while. So I asked Ross how he approaches disruptors as a banker. That's a good question. You know, as bankers, we're generally looking in the past. And so if Jeff Bezos had come to me in 19, let's just say it was 1997, said, look, I need to borrow some money because I'm forming this company called Amazon. We're going to sell books online. I probably would have turned him down. To be honest, I would have said, well, you got Barnes and Noble out there. And they've got retail locations all over the nation, and you're just going to sell them online? He would have had to share his vision of, I'm going to be able to sell nearly anything online, uh, but I still probably wouldn't have loaned him money just because it's tough to loan money to a disruptor or innovator because from a bank standpoint, it's just the future's unknown, and we look at the past. So if banks are hesitant to fund disruptors, where do they get their money? So I come in, I don't have any, I have an, a new business, untested, no history. You talked about equity. So how, how do I go about getting funding for my new, uh, I know it's going to be spectacular, disruptive business, but everybody looks at me and says, that's the same thing as door-to-door -door encyclopedia salesman. It's just you're using the internet. Why would I want to lend to that? How do you get funding for that type of idea? Well, it needs to be equity finance. So you, the next question would be, all right, well, how do you get the equity? Well, if you're Jeff Bezos and you're going to start selling books online, and I think this is kind of the way it went, in his garage, he had a bunch of books. And you know, once the word got out there and he starts selling books online, mailing them out, creating sales, then you can take that to equity investors and share your vision with them. And there's plenty of money out there that will invest in something like that if they can see your vision, if they can share that with you. Certainly, there are some governmental programs like the SBA that if you've got a business plan, they will loan you some money. But I would say the vast majority of the innovators and disruptors that have been out there the past 20 years, they've done it approaching well-heeled, large private equity firms 
that will invest in good management teams that have a really good idea of how they can disrupt an industry. Of course, the financial industry isn't immune to being disrupted. I asked Ross how he sees banks adapting to changing market demands. The banking industry has been around a long time. It's highly regulated. Certainly, there are disruptors to the industry. And I think one of the reasons why Cadence is merging with Bancorp South is because banks need to be able to spend more money on technology. And so you've got to have some size to be able to do that. If you're a a small bank that, you know, let's just say is a billion dollars in assets or less, and you make less than $10 million, you just can't spend a lot of money on technology. Whereas a bank that's large, that generates a billion dollars of cash profit, then you can spend some money on technology and compete where you want to compete with disruptive forces. So what are some ways that you see banks utilizing technology to be disruptive to the industry? Well, banks are using, and and I think Cadence is a good example, we're using more social and digital media to advertise the Cadence brand and to advertise our products. We also have interactive teller machines. It looks like an ATM and you approach it and somebody somewhere, you won't know where they're coming from, but they are gonna provide teller services to you. You may be in Houston and they're in Starkville, Mississippi. They could be in London, England for that matter, but they're gonna provide services to you and the machine has the ability to handle most of those teller transactions. Most of the people in the United States that, I'm gonna just pick an age under 30, I don't know if they've been into a bank or not. Everything is done digitally. If I was running one of the really large banks like JP Morgan or Bank of America, Wells Fargo, I would be looking at Uh, not only internally being able to use technology, but I'd also be looking at purchasing some companies that have done very well and are on the cutting edge of disrupting the banking industry. And again, I'll go back to PayPal. PayPal was relatively small five years ago. You know, they were part of eBay. And, you know, I kind of knew what PayPal did and I kind of knew what eBay did and then PayPal was spun off. And where I really found out what PayPal does is I noticed on my kids' bank statements, they had, you know, these Venmo transactions. And so, you know, I'm like Venmo here, Venmo there. So, you know, I ask them, what, what is this Venmo? And basically, that's how they exchange cash. They don't carry cash. They exchange it via Venmo. And the banking industry, a large part of it has come out with a product called Zelle that does the same thing. Yeah, that's a, if you think about it, I, PayPal you'd heard for a while, but here in the last two years, Venmo, Cash App, and I, I hear the, those words all the time and these things that I, I never used, I find myself using constantly. There's you're getting split a check on something, you're buying a coach's gift, whatever it is, you just zip the money over to whoever's going to go buy it. It makes it very easy. Another disruptive force in the banking industry has been the rise of alternative lenders. I asked Ross to give us a little perspective on the subject. So let's start by kind of defining our terms. What is alternative lending? 
I define alternative lending as lending that is done outside the traditional bank market. Alternative lending has been around a long time. I mean, if you go back 100 years ago, 125 years ago, go back to the early 1900s, the bank market wasn't built out like it is now. And you had a lot of locations that didn't even have a bank. And so what was the alternative lending market to a bank back then? It was wealthy people, right? They're the ones that had the money. So if you had a good idea or you were running, uh, you know, the local store or you had a farm or you had a ranch or whatever, and you needed some money, you went to somebody in the community that you thought had the means to be able to loan you some money and you would pitch them on loaning you some money. And in many cases, some of these well-to-do people ended up starting a bank because they were doing it out of their pocket anyway. Why not start a bank, especially if the area didn't have a bank? So it goes back a long time. Uh, now, it's I'd say people look at alternative lending more along the lines of, again, technology. What is an alternative lender doing from a technological standpoint that's different than a traditional bank? What are some of the things that, that are different? I know when I grew up, when I first heard alternative lending, I thought about a big guy and wearing a black suit that took my dog and my kid and my left hand for collateral. It's, it's, and all of a sudden, it's alternative, alternative. And I swear I must have gotten $3 million worth of loan offers in my mailbox here in the last month. I mean, every day somebody sends me something, say, we can loan you $200,000. We can loan you $80,000. In that way, it's different than a traditional bank that they're marketing to me. But what other ways are alternative lenders just different from traditional banking? You're right. Alternative lenders, for them, it's about generating, again, getting back to disruptors. They're disrupting an industry. And so for them, a key is generating revenue. So they're going to try. I'm the same as you. I got a offer from SoFi in the mail to loan me, you know, $5,000 to $100,000. And so they're looking at any number of ways, certainly a website, but they're traditional mail and I'm sure email. But their key is they want to solicit consumers and small businesses to go onto their platform and apply for consumer credit, much like you would with a credit card application. And what they're going to sell you is the speed of execution versus a traditional bank. Most banks are still in the traditional position of, you know, you walk in, you apply for the loan, and they go through all the steps, and then they get back to you in a week or two or three, whatever it takes. And again, banks are regulated, so it's more difficult for them to change. But the alternative lenders, that's really how they're disrupting is speed of execution. And it all comes down to credit risk. And as long as they can make relatively good decisions and you don't get hurt if you're making a thousand loans for a thousand dollars each versus a hundred one one hundred thousand dollar loan. You can have some losses when you're making a thousand loans at a thousand dollars a piece. So it's all about, you know, they're knocking on doors, using technology, and then selling the fact that they can fund quickly. I actually utilized an alternative lender on a home because I needed to get closed very quickly. They were correct. They were able to do it in a short time frame. 
And even though banks are regulated, I have never had any type of lending where there was more fine tooth comb through every single, I, mean, I had to explain transactions on a bank statement. Who did you give $50 to? I mean, it was really a, a very in-depth, in-depth review. So uh, is that because they're checking their credit risk or why do they seem to, to really delve into a lot versus the banks? Well, you said a mortgage, the larger the loan, then the more scrutiny it's going to get. And that's why, you know, historically you've seen credit card issuers basically issue it to anybody, right? But your, your max credit limit is going to be something like $2,500, $3,500. And then over a period of time where you show that you've been making the payments, they'll increase it because at the end of the day, a credit card issuer, their rate is going to offset a lot of those credit losses that they're going to take. But whether it be a bank or an alternative lender, anytime the loan is larger, they're going to take more time and they're going to perform more due diligence to establish that they think that the credit that they're going to issue will get repaid. So bank, we go gather deposits and that's how we make loans. Where, where do alternative lenders, where are they getting money to make loans? How do they get funded? You could basically say it's very much like mortgage lending, right? Most of the mortgage lending, they're selling it to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They're selling those loans. The, the mortgage companies aren't keeping those loans on their books. And a lot of people assume that if you're doing business with an alternative lender, that they've got as much capital as a percentage as a bank would. And there, a lot of people assume that they're kind of a bank. In reality, alternative lenders, since they don't, most of them don't gather deposits, so they don't have the funding sources, what they do is they fund, let's just say I'm going to use 1,000 loans, 1,000 loans at an average of $1,000 a piece, and then they're going to sell that basket to an investor. And the investor could be a bank. They're going to initiate the loan. So they get the, the customer, they make the loan, and they're going to service the loan. And for that, they take some of the money off the table. The rest of it is going to be funded by whoever the investor is buying the basket of loans. That's behind the scenes, and nobody will know that, but that's how they're able to be an alternative lender. So, we've covered what alternative lending is and how it functions, but there's an even more important question. Why? Why do borrowers go to alternative lenders? And what are the pros and cons compared to a bank? Speed is, I think, a big driver. I think that a lot of business people are maybe intimidated by approaching a bank because they've heard stories from their buddies or whatever. And look, getting back to speed, if you've talked to a peer of yours and they go, well, shoot, I got you know $50,000 in two days from XYZ SoFi, that sounds really good. And versus going into, you know, a branch of a bank and sitting down with a loan officer and applying for it. People can get used to looking at their computer screen and applying for something. It happens all the time. Whereas going in and applying for something when you're sitting across from somebody, 
again, that can be somewhat intimidating. Being able to do it online is a major pro, but there are a couple of cons. And one of them is that if you've got a spotty credit history, you really don't have someone to tell your story to, right? You know, it could be any number of reasons why you've got spotty credit history, but with a bank, a traditional source, you can sit down and talk about the income gaps or the non-payment of, or the slow payment of bills and other, other major credit issues that can alter a credit score. So that's a, a con. I'd say also some of these alternative lenders, they've got a minimum amount of money that you're required to borrow. Banks just don't have minimums. It may not make any difference to you, but sometimes the alternative lender doesn't want to, it's not going to go through their system unless they can make a certain amount of money on it. Also, alternative lenders are not regulated like banks. Many of them have gone out of business. They don't have a safety net. If they go out of business, what's going to happen is your loan is going to be sold to somebody else. Somebody, and you don't know who it is. You don't know what they're, how they're going to approach it. It could be investors who just want to get demand payment. You just don't know. And if, if you're a small business and borrowing on a revolving line of credit, you may not be able to do that anymore. So there is no safety net for alternative lenders. How does that affect in the collection? Let's say you have an alternative lender and something starts to go bad. Is, is it better being with a bank in that case? Is it worse being with a bank versus an alternative lender? With an alternative lender, you don't have somebody you can go sit down with and say, here's the problem, COVID, I couldn't open up my store. And so you try to work something out. With an alternative lender, generally, you know, they're going to probably sell your loan to a collection type entity, or they're going to give it to a collection agency and the collection agency is going to come after you. Cause again, you don't have anybody to talk to and tell your story. They paid less than face value. So they're just trying to get as much out of it as they can and make some money. Absolutely. It's very similar to a credit card. You know, if you go back years, it used to be, and Patrick, you probably remember this, you're old enough to remember, but when you went into a department store, you wrote a check, or you pay by cash for your merchandise. They actually had checks there that you could write on at different banks. And now everything's credit card and debit card. The credit card companies, you can pay your balance or you can pay a little. But the fact of the matter is, if you go into default, they're just gonna sell your credit card to somebody who's gonna be a collector and they're gonna go after you. With so many new lenders out there, how do you decide what's safe? For Ross, it's about doing the same thing to the lender that they do to you. I think if you're going to have a series of draws, let's just say you were building a home and went to an alternative lender or you're a a small business and you've got a revolving line of credit and you're going to fund up when you need it and pay back down when when you don't, You need to perform your own due diligence, be relatively cautious about who your lender is versus if you're doing it with a traditional bank, especially a bank that is a public company where you can go in and, you know, read the financial statements, read about how they're doing. That is probably preferable from a safety standpoint. If you're just going to get $5,000 up front, it makes relatively little difference. You know, because you're getting the cash money up front 
And maybe the worst thing that can happen is before you repaid it, that alternative lender somehow goes out of business and somebody else assumes that loan. And so you had that hassle. But I, if you're going to get it in draws or you've got a revolving line of credit, then I, I'd be a little bit cautious. So it's almost like the lenders doing their analyzing their risk, but now the borrower needs to think about what their risk is as well. On both sides of the equation, I guess there's risk to, to all parties. Yeah, there is, but I don't think most borrowers perform that much due diligence. And basically, if they can get approval, they're probably going to go for it, right? Usually, you know, here, I'll give you some money. Most say, all right, give it to me. Right, right. <laughs> I know my, my boys, I, I dread the fact they may actually get mail at some point says, just sign up and we'll give you $5,000 because they'll start coming home with the collection notices going, dad, what am I supposed to do with this thing? Disruptors dream big and they challenge our assumptions. There's lessons here for every business, even if you aren't trying to be the next Amazon. You've got to be improving and adapting all the time. The lending world is doing some adapting of its own and borrowers have more options than ever. It's really worth doing your due diligence and understanding your priorities so you can get the loan that's right for you and get back to changing the world. Big thanks to Ross Vaughn, Cadence's very own disruptor. In Good Companies is a podcast from Cadence Bank, member FDIC, equal opportunity lender. Sheena Cochran is our production coordinator. Our executive producer is Danielle Cornell, with writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. I'm your host, Patrick Pacheco. If you've made it this far and you've got something out of the episode, why don't you go out and give us a five-star rating in your podcast app? It's the best thing you can do to help the show grow and reach more people. And join us next week, because when you're with us, we're in good companies. This podcast is provided as a free service to you and is for general informational purposes only. Cadence Bank makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, completeness, or timeliness of the content in the podcast. The podcast is not intended to provide legal, accounting, or tax advice and should not be relied upon for such purposes. To the extent that this podcast includes predictions about the economy, these predictions are subject to a number of variables and you should confer with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors for their input regarding the possible outcomes of any economic subject matter discussed herein.